Welcome to a podcast in the Catholic world. We are a group of individuals on a hill. Just two. Would we? Would two qualify as a group? Like no. By, by definition, I don't know. Two's company, three's a crowd. Mm, but what is a group? What is a gaggle? Are we a gaggle? Or are we a? A gaggle would imply four or more. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. You're just saying you think. I think we. I think we would be a couple of Catholic dudes on the hill reflecting on Scripture in community. Wasn't that the original title we had for this podcast? Catholic Remember guys reflecting super, on scriptures yeah, in community or something? Or something like that. It was a really lame title. It was like, yeah, I think we got vetoed on that one. We did pretty quickly. Yeah, we needed to get more creative to be with you guys. So today hey. is the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. Nope. And We're in Lent. Advent. Lent. And Easter. Okay, here we go. In the days after Pentecost. All right. Come on, I'm just oh. trying to find a liturgical season that matches my feelings and you inside. Got, is that what you feel? No. Okay. I feel like it's land. Yeah, I know you do. That's why that's the disturbing. Yeah, I need. To... I'm Scott Powell, by the way, and Who I'm are Father you? Peter Musset. And this is the word in the hall. Yeah, and um, can you tell that we're um, hanging out with you in Lent, doing Lent things? <laughs> what? Because I that can. sentence even mean. Do you get any shout-outs? Do okay. not go to Costco. Oh my gosh, dude! I went to Costco. <laughs> oh, I was no. like, I was like, oh, man, I need a grocery. Was it cleaned I, out? One of the things that oh, I decided no. that I needed to do is yeah. not eat out during Lent. Oh right, that's so one of your I'm things. eating groceries yeah. Yeah. for Lent. <laughs> and <laughs> that's a strange way to formulate that sentence. But <laughs> I'm eating groceries for Lent. All right, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go with it. So, man, but I went to I went to the Costco and oh, I. No. You haven't seen Ma- a madhouse? Oh no, no, man. It was it was pandemonium. <laughs> Literally, people running into each other, which they're doing no, anyway because the carts are a little too big. Right, right. So just like so, and they're hard, hard to navigate, and they have a lot of weight in them already. So they've got inertia. But like, dude, <laughs> I mean, li- literally, I was talking to somebody, and they were like, "Get out of my way!" And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Seriously? Yeah, it's like I ran into some prisoners. I was like, "How's it going? Good Sunday to oh you." My gosh. Did you uh, the Hassers? Did you go and take the um, samples? Um, yeah, yeah. Did you put your fingers all over the samples that everybody else is sampling? I think it's ironic. I saw, I think it was like a meme or something. It's just like everybody's going to Costco to get all of the stuff and supplies for the sickness. And then we're all putting our fingers on all the samples on the right to do it. Oh, I'll have one of those. A cheese roll? Sure. It just was ironic. I I like the irony, man. But I'm just just saying, Costco, man, that's the place to be if you want to like. Have have an experience of of, <laughs> of, of, Lent. of the Lenten pandemonium, pandemonium that we have discovered in this virus, <laughs> or whatever strain of virus it is. It's yeah. like crazy. So, second um, Sunday of Lent, our first reading. Oh, we're jumping right. In. <laughs> oh, can I give a really quick shout out? You asked me if I had shadows, and then you had some. Was, yeah. Is that kind of like when well, you, you ask somebody seg- how they're doing, and you no. really just want to tell them how you're doing? No, I presumed that you did have shout-outs. <laughs> I knew I did as well, so I was doing the courtesy of letting you go first. Oh, is that what It I wasn't was? passive-aggressive. That wasn't was passive-aggressive. Passive. <laughs> Merely passive. I just want to give a shout-out to all of the good folks up at the St. Therese Institute of Faith and Mission up in Bruno, Saskatchewan. I was up there over the weekend. Such an amazing community up in Bruno. These, um, it's a school where young people take either a year or two years, sometimes three, and basically just come and learn catechesis, develop discipleship, live in community, serve the community, um, basically live a kind of monastic life together and, and fall in love with Jesus. It's such a cool place. 
they invited me up for their annual Linton retreat and all their friends and family came out. So such a great place. So thanks to everybody who was wow, there. That's and awesome. We love you guys. Yeah, and and um and I'm so sorry that I wasn't there. I know. But I know. you were missed. I, I greatly felt missed. That. I, I really appreciated the selfie with all of them there. There would have been so many more tangents if you had been there. <laughs> <laughs> Our first reading is from Genesis twelve one A to four A. Nope. Just just one to four A, right? Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify. One A is an oxymoron because it's the be- yeah. That's the right. beginning of the. Well, the it would it would okay Our okay. Our responsorial psalm. You don't get that. Ah. Is Psalm number thirty three a psalm of praise? Number four uh, verses four to five, eighteen through nineteen, praise. twenty and twenty two. Are you groaning? Praise. Jeez. The scariest <laughs> praise groan I've ever heard in my life. All right. Our second reading is it's coming from Timothy. <laughs> If you're not the guy to take it, I'm gonna take it. <laughs> that, that's what I did you with snoo- the song. Move your feet, lose your seat. Move your I feet, said. lose your seat. Second Timothy one eight B to ten. <laughs> yeah, not eight A. No, eight A is not. It's cut off for family, dude. It is anathema. Um, no, it's not actually anathema. Our gospel is coming from Matthew chapter seventeen, verses one through nine. The famous transfiguration scene. Transformers. Nope. More than meets More the eye. More than meets the eye. Um, all right, dude, our okay. f- first reading from the Genesis. Is- I had a theme that I was thinking about for all of these readings um, before we came up here, and now I'm trying to rack my memory. Um, um, I, the, the, and maybe it's like, the, it, may, it might even be the title to the podcast, but the theme that I'm seeing is um, dying before you get to see the end, or something like dying before you get to see the fruit of something. That that sort of is... Dying on the vine? No. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. Um, which sounds kind of morbid and weird that I say it that way, but there is one of the common threads is dying before something comes to full fruition. I don't even know what to do. You just gave me the punchline of everything that you're doing with no context. It's yeah. it, you've like Sometimes you, you've, it's you've jeopardy. flipped it. It's jeopardy. And now we find the question, dude. Okay, what so- is Genesis twelve one through four? This is chapter 12, verse 1, is the beginning of Abraham's call. Right? Okay. So uh, Abraham, at this point in the story, we're, uh, so this little, um, little, this is an important moment in the macro sense of both scripture, but also the book of Genesis. So you could divide the book of Genesis pretty evenly into two major parts, right? Okay. You have chapters 1 through 11, which is sort of understood as, as primeval history. It's universal, right? So it's about the first human parents. It's about this worldwide flood. It's everything, all, all of creation coming together. So it's everything that's sort of happening on a big picture universal scale. And then in chapter 12, the whole of the book stops and narrows and focuses in on not all of humanity, but now one person and his family. And the Bible will stay with that one guy and his family through the rest of the scriptures. It doesn't leave him or his ancestors. And not ancestors, his uh, descendants. Descendants. So we're introduced to Abram. His name is later going to be changed to Abraham. And in sort of setting up this paradigm in Genesis 1 through 11 of how God works in the world, which is, so you can you, you really can follow a, a pattern from the whole Bible. So creation begins in Genesis 1 as chaos, right? There's formlessness and a void. So creation is chaotic. God brings order out of the chaos. Then human beings disobey God, which brings chaos back, which causes God to step back in and bring order, which causes human beings to sin. It doesn't cause human beings to sin, but we do sin. So there's this, this cycle that moves always from chaos to order to sin to chaos to order to sin to chaos. And it goes on and on and on. And so at this moment in Genesis 12, God 
says, okay, I'm going to choose a covenant partner. I'm going to focus on this guy and I'm going to build relationship with him in a way that he hasn't really done with anyone yet in the scriptures. And I'm going to build relationship with this man. Even with Noah? I mean, he did. He had, it was different though. He, Noah gets a vocation. Noah has a calling, but you don't get a whole lot. Noah's story is very short, at least what we get in Genesis. Right. You don't get a whole lot of interaction between God and Noah. Quite frankly, I mean, God asks Noah to do, Noah is a covenant partner. He is someone who God finds favor with, right? Right. Who has the task of, um, by the way, Noah's story is not just about building a big boat. The New Testament says that Noah's story was about calling all of humanity to repentance, to actually turn back to God so that God didn't have to flood the world and have this whole thing happen. Um, but people don't listen, and that, that is mean, what it is. It, but the, there's the an whole, intimacy whole, with Abraham. Yeah, the whole Noah narrative is is easier to read than the comedy sketch by, um, by um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bill Cosby. Yeah. No. Junk, junk, junk. Speaking of sin and chaos. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but, Abra- but, but there's a... <laughs> I'm just going to let it be. But there is an intimacy that God shows with Abraham, though, that he doesn't with the others, right? And maybe it's just that we have more of his story. So the scriptures are telling, they're, they're giving you the insight into this, this um, intimacy that God experiences with Abraham. So when Abraham is, sort of shows up in the Bible, he's living in this place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. It'll later in the Bible times be uh, Babylon, but that's where he is. He's in Ur. That's why the, the Church of Babylon is the, Chalde- the Chalde- <laughs> Chaldean Christians, right? So Ur of the Chaldees, that's the part of the world where we are. And so he will be called from that place, which will later be Babylon and Iraq, to a place called Canaan, which will later become the land of Israel, right? So God calls Abraham and he basically asks three things of him. He says, Abraham, I want you to go forth to the land of your, uh, go forth rather, from the land of your kinsfolk, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So in other words, he says, Abraham, I want to build relationship with you. I want to show you who I am, and I want to build you up to be a light in a very dark world. And so, well, yeah, specifically, he says, "I'm going to be your father." He's pulling him from his father's house. Yeah, sure, I suppose so. Right, he says, "I'm going to yeah. take you from the father's house to my house, to my house, baby, to the father's house." Part of the problem that, well, we'll get there in a second. Okay, so leave your leave your father's house. In other words, leave your comfort, leave your homeland, leave leave what you've known. Leave your family members, right? right? Don't take anybody with you, except your wife. You're allowed to take her. Um, and and go, Lot. Well, he's not allowed to take Lot. That That's the that's kind of the kicker in this whole story, right? God is actually pretty clear. He's like, don't bring any family members with you. Well, because Lot's causing a lot of problems. Lot causes a lot of problems. This is how the Bible loves to work. It'll show you a bad decision that someone makes. And it doesn't go and say, and he did what was naughty and God was upset. It instead shows you the consequence of what happens, the fruit that is born from our bad decisions. I was talking to my class last night about, um, who was it? Uh, Hannah. Remember Hannah and the story of Samuel? Yeah. Hannah, um, her husband has two wives. And the Bible doesn't go out of its way to say, and, and you know, this guy was naughty and he shouldn't have had two wives. And so sometimes people read the Bible and be like, oh, God's okay with all this stuff in the Old Testament. Right. It doesn't say, no, that was really wrong and he shouldn't have done that. But instead it shows you how the story plays out. It shows you the consequence of human sin and how that works, which is why Lot is the source of all this trouble. Right. Because he was not supposed to bring him. So leave your family, leave your home, leave your homeland, and go to a place that I have not shown you yet, which is, this is the moment that sort of, especially in the context of the New Testament, makes Abraham the model of faith. Paul constantly turns to Abram, Abraham 
um, to show us the icon of what faith is supposed to look like. Because God asks Abraham to do something that he's going to be blind to. He says, I want you to leave everything that you know, and I want you to get on the road, pack up all of your stuff, and get on the road and travel to a place that I haven't shown you yet. So in other words, you know, go and rent a U-Haul, put everything you own in the U-Haul, get on I-25, and just start driving. I'll tell you where we're going when we get there. Which is a tremendous, he's older. I mean, he's not like a 20-year-old who, you know, when I remember there was 75. A, right. But I mean, there was a point in my life that I would have loved something like this. You know, and I I, I had this, <laughs> this. Uh, I was very proud of the fact that for a, many years, I could fit every single worldly possession that I owned in the back of my car. And I was so proud of that. And I was like, I can fit everything. So I can pack it up and I can go wherever I want to. Right. And then I got married and then family life kicked in. And then, you know, you, you grow up. Did you buy it? And you buy a kayak. And you buy a kayak. Well, I fit the kayak. No, I had the kayak at that point. I had kayaks and bikes and skis. And they all fit in the back of the car. I'm impressed. Very proud of that. Anyway. Um, well, someone fit on top of the car. Okay, okay, so, yeah, there so we I go. Okay, I mean, right, come on. Right. I was like, I was like, dude, the, wow, <laughs> what kind of car did you drive? I drove a good car. I drove a pickup truck, which was also handy. But that, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we're getting we're getting away <laughs> we're from getting the point. <laughs> we're getting away from the point. Uh, but he's asked to do, you know, th- this tremendous act of faith, which is not. I, I do think it's different than blind faith. Sometimes we talk about blind faith or blind obedience. I don't think this is a blind faith because he's already met God. And it's not blind because he's being asked to do something by someone who's already who's already met. Now, he hasn't entered deeply into this relationship yet. God has introduced himself. He has begun to show himself to Abraham. But I have to presume that there is a relationship that God is building. So it's not blind faith for me to do something that my wife asks me to do or something that you ask me to do that I can't necessarily see the end of because I know you and I trust you and I trust that you're not going to ask me to do something that's going to hurt me or my right. wife my family, you know? Right. So uh, there's blind obedience. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen, so I'm just going to go for it. And right. then there's obedience based on relationship. Right. And say, well, I, I know you. And I don't know if we're even at the point where Abraham can say, I love you, God. He will come to that point, I think. But he has been introduced to God. So he is asked to act on this. And so God says, when you do this, I'm going to do something for you. This is what I'm asking of you, but here's what I'm going to give you. And when we we're, when we meet Abram early on in the story, we find out, yeah, he's 75, he's old, and he desperately wants children. He has not been given any offspring. And culturally, the understanding was that if you didn't have kids, it's because you did something wrong. You've sinned somehow, which is never in the Bible, but it's kind of what everyone assumes. And so right. Abram is coming from this hard place in life of thinking, what did I do wrong? What? Where have I failed? Where have I been unfaithful that God hasn't blessed me in? this way. And so God says, no, I'm, I'm going to bless you. You are longing for blessing. Abram's name, by the way, do you know what Abram means literally? No. It's built into sorry, the story. So the name Abram means beloved father, which is part of the irony of the story is the one who desperately wants to be a father is named beloved father. So his very name is a reminder of what he does not have. Which is kind of, there's this painfulness to it, right? Wow. Abraham will be the word that means the father of many nations. So it will sort of expand upon this original name. But his his identity is built into his name and the pain that he, burden the burden he carries is built into who he is in a certain sense. And yeah. so God's going to use that. Wow. So he says, I'm going to do these things for you. Number one, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who you curse. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. If you read that carefully, there's seven parts to the blessing. And seven is always the number that represents the covenant. So God's basically saying, I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to make covenant with you. I'm going to unite myself. I'm going to wed myself to you. And because of that relationship, you are going to see all these things. Your descendants, who you long for, are going to be a great nation. There will be a great name, and a great name in the ancient world implies kingship, dynasty, right? A kingdom that everybody knows the name of. And then through you, all of the earth will be blessed. And the reason I thought I brought up the um, original point is that Abram doesn't get to see any of this, right? All of these things that God promises to Abram, he does not get to see. He never gets to, so he does see the descendants, He does have children. He has Isaac. He has Ishmael as well, and that's a problematic relationship. But he does have a child, but he never gets to see that child grow up to be a great nation. He never gets to see the kingdom, the dynasty of David that will come out of this. He never gets to see all the communities, the earth finding blessing in his descendants. So Abram not only moves forward in faith, he moves forward in faith for the outcome of something that he will never get to experience. He never gets to see the fruit of what his faithfulness prepared the way for, which is heartbreaking and also beautiful in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the pattern of our lives as well. Yes. I mean, because it's in, you know, we say we, we, um, we seek God for his own sake. We do the things of God, not for, for uh, the graces, but for in and of themselves. Yeah. But yes, I think that's true. But Abraham is also given incentive by God. He's like, these things are going to happen. Like, you're going to get stuff. I don't, hopefully, Moses, or Abram doesn't do it simply for the getting of it stuff. It feels, feels like priesthood. They're like, you'll get a <laughs> sabbatical at 10 years. You're like, okay. okay. And we'll give you a free house to live in. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah. And by the way, it takes two years to apply for. <laughs> oh. And you're like, <laughs> that's not right. I know. It's hard. All right. So then we get to Psalm 33. Lord, let your mercy be upon us as we place our trust in you. Um, this is a relatively straightforward um, prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Um, it's meant to be, uh, it, it, in the Bible, the tradition, it says it's it's to be sung by the Levitical priests, I believe. It's a priestly prayer in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, I don't have a whole lot to add, but I mean, I imagine this thinking about Lent, thinking about Abraham, Abram. I mean, part of what I didn't mention about Abraham, Abraham makes me reflect on the nature of Lent. Right? And you talked about it in, in a more universal Christian sense of this is what we're all called to. But in a very particular way in Lent, we're asked to go on a journey. We're asked to go out into the desert in a certain sense, right? To move forward toward an Easter that we believe and we know and we look forward to, but we have not yet experienced. Well, and we have in a certain sense, but in another sense, we haven't. Well, I, I think that Jesus experienced the, temp- the like temptations towards these th- things. Okay. So like the promises of Abraham are yeah. what Jesus also actually had to go through in the desert. Absolutely. I'm going to make your name great. Throw Absolutely. yourself down from the yeah, temple. Yeah. Everybody take care of you. You know what I'm saying? Like... Um, uh, great nation, so you have the nations of I'll the earth. All the uh, yeah, of the exactly. Earth, yeah. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and I don't know where, where the bread fits in. But, it, that. It, but it, in the you know, big picture, but, but, paradigm, but, yeah, yeah, like, but in, in a certain sense, it's like we we see that like no, there's a temptation to to actually fulfill the promise for yeah, yourself absolutely. versus waiting on God versus waiting on God. And how can you wait on God? How can you journey forward? 
waiting with patience. Because again, Abram's going to have to be patient for his entire life and still never see the end of this story. Well, then we we can't forget that his name is Father. He made it to seventy five, which is not a spring chicken. No, he's old. And then he gets well, another. Old, then he gets he another becomes... promise, and then he's like, "Oh man, yeah, absolutely. I need you to do this." And he's like, "Dude, I'm seventy five, bro." That's exhaust. I mean, that, that's and, the and thing. then he's like, and then I'm gonna make a baby, and then you're like, what? <laughs> he even laughs at God. Yeah. So, oh, Sarah, Sarah laughs, laughs at, God. at God. That's how she got her name. Yeah. Well, Isaac, how Isaac got his name. But yeah, because it's 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 almost laughable. He's which is again adds another piece to like, okay, seventy five, pack up everything you own and take a road trip. You're like, that's really an undetermined tired. road an trip. Undetermined road trip. That's exhausting. With with. The end of my prayer, the blessing of the prayer that I've longed for at the other end of this. All right. So how do you do that? How do you journey that way? I think Psalm 33 is the answer, right? Because I believe, and maybe you repeat to yourself, and now Abraham doesn't have the Psalms yet, but in our trying to imitate that, we can say, well, we know that upright is the word of the Lord. We know his works are trustworthy. We know that he loves justice and right. We know the kindness of the Lord in the earth is, of the kindness of the Lord, the earth is full. We know these things. This is, again, why the Lenten journey is not a blind faith. All right, well, I'm going to give up some stuff and I'm not going to eat meat on Friday. And I just hope it works out. I hope I don't get really grumpy and annoyed, and I hope that, you know, giving these things up doesn't actually serve to be a, this horrible thing in my life. You know, I mean, it's such a small thing. It's very different than getting on a road, packing up everything you own, following after God. But we can do all of these little things and the big things because of the words of Psalm 33. They're meant to be the reminder that gives you, um, that gives you the, the paradigm for why this makes sense. Because it's not blind, right? We follow God through Lent. Because we actually do know the end of the story. Right. Yes, we haven't experienced it in its fullness yet, but we also right. know. We know that he's upright. We know that his works are trustworthy. And if we know that his works are trustworthy, then we can trust and we can go. So I think it's appropriate that I struggled with finding a way to fit Psalm 33 into this. But but I think it fits because that's the, the um, the what do you say, the mantra for the journey in a certain sense. Yes. Right? So that's how I'm looking at Psalm 33. I like it. Which takes us to, to 2 Timothy. And I think 2 Timothy actually fits remarkably well within this. It doesn't seem like it at first glance, okay? but contextually. Context, contextualize me. All right. So do you remember the context of 2 Timothy? I feel, like we, I feel like we talked about this not too long ago. 2 Timothy is what's called one of the pastoral epistles. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. I yeah. mean, just, yeah. So the past, but, but remind us a little well, bit. Well, the pastoral epistles. So most bit. of Paul's little bit. Little bit. Little bit. Little Sebastian. Most of the pastoral epistles, um, I'm sorry, most of Paul's epistles, pardon me, are written to communities, right? The letter yes. to the Romans, letter to the Corinthians, the right. Ephesians, to ch- giant church communities. Well, I'm sorry, big or small church communities in these places. The pastorals are written to individuals. So First and Second Timothy are written to Timothy, who was Paul's, probably his best friend, his companion, the one who he sort of patch- passes the torch to, who becomes a bishop of the city of Ephesus. And Titus, who is another pastor, he's he's pastor of the church in Crete, um, over by Greece. But they're where, all, in, where all those Cretans live. All the Cre- that is where the term actually comes from. I know. <laughs> actually, I've got I put on my nerdy glasses. I know. No. Actually, Father Painter, <laughs> actually, actually does come from Crete. <laughs> That's why it was funny. It was on a double level meaning, mm. but it was even funnier because I snaked you into trying to into be a being geek. a nerd. Thanks, man. It doesn't yeah. take much. Yep, it doesn't. Um, okay, so so they're, they're instructions from Paul 
about how to do their job, right? Yeah. It's like Bishop Aquila, right? Or Archbishop Aquila writing you a letter. Actually, it's more like Archbishop Chaput who ordained you, right? He was the one who accepted you into seminary, helped to form you, ordained you. And then he periodically sends you letters here in Boulder. He's like, here's the things that I've learned about what it means to be a good pastor. No, it would, it would be like him sending a letter to my pastoral council about what it means to be a good pastor. Yes, First Timothy and Titus would be that. Because they're written to the communities that Timothy and Titus oversee. Yeah, so it's encouraging him in public. It's kind of wild. But Second Timothy is different. Oh, and Timmy that's the Tim? distinction. Second Timothy is a personal letter written to Timothy. And again, it probably had a context in the congregation in some don't way you, because we have it. Wouldn't that be sweet if your writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit so seriously that people would study them forever? Just like, I think I'll write to Timothy a letter. That sounds so stressful. That sounds <laughs> so stressful. And Talk about peer review. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, um, but but that means the nature of Second Timothy is much more personal. It's much more heartfelt. And it's the one that's like, I really, Timothy, you're one of my best friends. And Paul writes it just before his death. So on his deathbed, he's writing to one of his best friends to say, what can I pass on to you to carry this torch? Because I'm not going to be with you any longer. I'm probably never going to make a trip back to see you. Yeah. And so I want to give you something to go on. And the reason that it reminds me of Abraham and sort of the paradigm of all these together is that I'm thinking about Paul and I'm thinking about the words that he he writes both here and in all of his letters. So bear your share of hardship for the gospel, Timothy, with the strength that comes from God. He saved us. He called us to a holy life according to our works, not according to our works, rather, but according to his own design and the grace bestowed on us in Christ Jesus before time began has now been made manifest. Those promises given to Abraham have come true, in other words, mm. is what he's saying. Through the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ, he is the one through whom that Abram's promises came true. Thousands of years later, through someone who literally was the descendant of Abraham, Jesus. So he, this is what he's talking about. Who destroyed death, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, saying, don't forget what we know about God, because times are actually hard in the church that Timothy's leading. Yes. It's hard to be a pastor in any circumstance, and he actually has particularly hard circumstance. Paul, every one of Paul's letters is basically these words of desperation saying, don't, don't listen to the lies. Don't give in to false teachers. Don't get confused. There's so many voices. There's so much darkness. There's so much confusion and chaos. Listen to the apostles. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to Timothy. And Paul actually says he spends sleepless nights. He has constant anxiety over what's happening in all of his churches right. because they're these little fledgling realities with people struggling through. Some are good teachers. Some are bad teachers coming in trying to manipulate and confuse people. I mean, can you imagine living in Ugh. a church in which there are good teachers and bad teachers and there are actual forces and personalities within your church who are trying to confuse and manipulate the faithful? Gosh, that, that would be fairly so familiar. hard. Which I mean, go on the internet for Pete's sake. Yeah, just but, look at just look at the those. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even gonna. Don't, I don't, don't. I don't even. There. I don't even want to go there because no, I, because it's, it's not like, worth it. What, what, what's hard is that it's just it hits very close to home, right? And that's why Paul writes this letter. And that, in a very real sense, is why people still read and study this letter, and the rest of them, because this is still the perennial problem. Right. Which I almost am defeating my own point by saying that, because we still have the same problems. But in another sense, 
I'm just thinking about Paul and I'm thinking about Paul on his deathbed and I'm thinking about Paul giving up everything. He leaves his teaching career as a rabbi. He leaves his prestige. He leaves his home. He leaves his country. He leaves his identity. His, his, he, he rejects, he says, his sort of legal status as a citizen of Rome. I'm, I count all of those things as, as lost, as scubala, he says, so that I can do this. But Paul never gets to really see the fruit of what he's done. He dies with all of these churches that he's established, fighting with each other and being confused and being time to time manipulated by others, trying to tear down their own pastors, you know, living in the margins, rejected by their societies. He never got to live to see the Roman Empire, the, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, become Christian. He never got to see all of the fruit of what he did. And yet he moves forward with this total confidence, not because he's blind, but because he has met Jesus Christ. He knows that his works are trustworthy. He knows that he is justice and right. He knows that upright is the word of the Lord. And so he can spend everything. And then he dies without ever actually getting to see the fruit of what he's done. Mm. Just like Abraham in a certain sense. But he even has the understanding that I am the fruit of Abraham's trust. And because of that, think of what will be the fruit of my trust. If this is what Abraham's has produced, then then in the power and the grace of right, Jesus Christ, right. imagine what we can do. But yet, but yet, in this very Lenten way, he dies before he gets to see the full fruit of that. Mm. In, a, in a certain sense, I mean, well, we'll get there. We'll get to the gospel. Yeah, That's my thought on Second Timothy. Well, in, and I mean, it's summed up in this line, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Yeah. Through, through this good gospel, news. Through this word. This, that this is upright. E- Evangelion, this testament. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, from okay. the Father's voices heard, this is my beloved son, hear him. <laughs> that is the... Uh, the lispy version. That's the... Uh, I don't even know what that is. I don't know. It's, that's it's like, a, like a strange English prince version. It's very erudite. Erudite. Is, is that like uh, one of the... the Fancy. Area, like, uh, area, isn't that the one of the people in like the um uh, uh movie series, young adult books? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, I don't know. Disenchantment, erudite, um, Katniss, Everdeen. No, I, I just, <laughs> the Hunger Games. No, it's not the Hunger yeah, Games. It's like Twilight. Dis- dismemberment, or um, I can't come up with the name of the. <laughs> it's the name. What is happening over here? <laughs> Oh like, my goodness! No, literally, Carrie Floyd is yelling at her. I, at her, I hope a eye lot device. of people are. Yeah, her eye device. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, Dude, what was in it? Okay, yeah. transfiguration. Transfiguration. We 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 can we can make it through this podcast here. Okay, so we get Matthew's version of the transfiguration. Um, Mark gives us a version. Luke gives us a version. And, uh, it's only in the synoptics, right? John, I don't think John has. A I don't version. know. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, my favorite, my favorite is Luke's version, which is not what we get this week, but that's okay. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a word about Luke's in just a second. No, um, but we're talking about. Matthew. I know we're talking about Matthew, but Luke gives us more information, so we'll talk about Matthew. <laughs> don't worry, everything's fine. Come on, do not fine. betray what we're I doing. I won't. I won't. I won't. You're betraying me. We also have the full canon of the Gospels, though, so we are able to fill in the gaps. <laughs> We've been given the gift of all the Gospels together. Okay. Um, <laughs> Peter takes James, John, uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Yeah. Jake, did you say Jake took James, <laughs> no, and John, and Peter? Jesus. It's it's complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, There's a lot of J's. Yeah. Um, 
the context for the story of the transfiguration is this. Um, Jesus is about to make his way down to Jerusalem. I am convinced that the transfiguration, although it does not get credit for it as much as it should, is the turning point of the Gospels. And this is sort of the moment that Jesus, in, in Luke it's clear, sorry, I'm bringing back Luke. In Luke it's clear that right after this point, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Yep. So Jesus ministers, he teaches, he performs miracles, he begins planting the seeds. That's how Matthew sort of words it, right? right. He's planting the seeds of the kingdom all over. And then after the transfiguration, he says, okay, now we're headed to Jerusalem. Now the rubber's about to meet the road. So in a certain sense, the transfiguration is what sort of enters us into the Lenten journey to the cross. Right, absolutely. It's the, it's the catalyst. It's the moment. And I think part of why he does that, and he takes his three best friends, right? His three closest companions, Peter, James, and John. Maybe they're not his best friends, but they're his closest apostles. Right. Maybe Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha are his best friends. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, I like reflecting on that. I don't know if they are or not, but it's yeah, kind of a fun thought. That is it? a fun thought. Um, anyway, but he takes his closest disciples, his closest companions, up to this mountain, and he's going to show them something because he knows that they're about to make this journey that they're not going to be able to see the end of. And we know that they can't see the end of it because he keeps telling them what's going to happen at the end, and they do not see it. Or they, they bonk, and then they yell at each other. Like, right. they, like, like they just keep on misunderstanding Which what he's Which tells you that they do. don't see it. You guys yeah. don't get it. So he says, okay, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a long journey. You guys are going to need something to hang on to. So I'm going to take you with me, and I'm going to give you an insight into what's going on inside of me. And I'm going to give you some food to basically chew on so that when things get really hard, you have a bit of a resource to go back to because I've shown you something I've not shown anyone else on earth. Right. So he takes them up on this mountain. Um, it's believed, there's a theory, who knows, that this might be the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Which I think would that bring a, a, lot of a beautiful theological idea to it. Yeah. Because then they, he says, I want to build three tents. I want a tabernacle up here. I want a tabernacle. But what is the Feast of Tabernacles remembering? Um, going Moses going up onto the mountain. No, I mean not, not Moses. really. No, no. Tabernacles Moses coming down from the mountain. No, not really. I mean giving of the law on Sinai. No, that's Pentecost. Actually, <laughs> what? But you're clear. I mean, it's within the time period. I don't know what. Why I'm missing this? You I don't Bill, know Bill Mansfield's like. Come on! <laughs> well, the feast itself be- betrays its meaning, right? So tabernacles. To ta- th- what do they want to do? They want a tent up there with them. They want to establish some tents. Feast so- of loaves. No, stop it. The feast of <laughs> the feast of tabernacles, though, re- reminds us of the forty years that the, Israel dwelt in, in the tents, desert after the being desert. set free from Egypt. Yeah. Why am I not? No, what it's all right. I- You're fine. You were Come there. Come on, I just I'm you were there. Sorry. You were too close to it. I mean, you were right there. It's still the same story. Yeah. But what's happening in the feast of tabernacles? We're recalling. The the moment that we were on the road, we were wandering, we're in the desert, and we can't fully see the place that we're going yet. We know where we're supposed to go. We know where we're headed, but we don't know it yet. Mm. We're not there, which reminds me of Abraham. It reminds me of Paul. It reminds me of Lent and what we're actually doing. So I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus does this on that feast yes. or right around that feast. Right. Because I could see that that theological coordination. Yeah, I think it's it kind of beautiful. It fits very well into your theme. <laughs> it works for me, and that's all that matters. As long as it works for me. So he goes up and he's transfigured, right? So he's so the reason I like Luke, I like them all. I like them all. But Pope uh, Pope Benedict Ratzinger, uh no, he was Pope Benedict at the time. Okay. He wrote his famous trilogy, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Yeah. Remember this this masterful work. And he has this amazing reflection on 
the transfiguration, but he says Luke, he points out that Luke is the only, all three of the synoptics, right, point out that Jesus takes the disciples up this mountain and he's transfigured Moses and Elijah up here. But Luke is the only one who tells you the purpose of his going up the mountain, which is this seems like it's small, but it's actually this huge insight. And only Luke says Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. pray. Yes. And so what you have in the transfiguration, what what is Jesus letting them into? It's not just he's showing them this really cool miracle or like, hey, check out this thing that I can do. I can get Moses and Elijah to show up. That That's not what he's doing. He's giving them an insight into what Jesus's interior life looks like. Here's what my prayer looks like, Peter, James, and John, so that not that's, only you can understand where we're right? going, but you can know me even more intimately. Right. And that's why when he gets up before dawn to go pray, he actually can yeah. read books still because he can glow. Oh, jeez. And, and he, can, he doesn't need, <laughs> he doesn't a light. need his iPhone. He to doesn't need his iPhone be, or to use because oh, he Pete's himself sake. is the light. But it is sort of beautiful that I was talking to the, the religious head teachers on Tuesday. You, you walked in on us right when we were talking about this. Yeah. Um, and, oh, my gosh, Maddie had such a great insight. So when Jesus prays, what happens when Jesus prays? When Jesus prays, he's lit up. Like that's what right. his prayer looks like. He is, he's glows. He's brought to life. This also, I mean, you right. mentioned um, the Moses, Mount Sinai. That's the other thing that the apostles should be thinking about. They're like, holy cow, he just took us up on a mountain and now he, his countenance has changed. He's glowing. That's exactly what happened to Moses when he went up on a mountain and he received the law and he was lit up, right? Right. The difference, of course, says Radson, or says Benedict, is that while Moses was lit, he had, it was like light was reflecting onto him. Right. Jesus is emanating the light. Right. He is the source of it. Right. Which means, again, when Jesus prays, he's lit up. And one of our students, it was, it was just so beautiful. She was like, wait, that reminds me of this class I was in, and we were doing this thing and having this discussion in class. And then someone came up to me afterward. They were like, are you a Christian? She was like, yeah. And she was like, oh, I go to this church and I go to this church. But there was like, there was something about you that was like lit up when you were talking about ah. this thing. And she's, she was like, that's, it's supposed to be all of us. This is what our prayer, we're not going to look like Jesus, but it gives us an insight to what our prayer life should look like. Yes. That relationship with the father should light us up yes. into the world, Yes, which is a, such a beautiful insight. But then Moses and Elijah show up. Of course, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So again, as, as Benedict points out, he's like, what's the conversation? The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, are speaking to Jesus. The law and the prophets are speaking about Jesus. He says this is the interpretive key to the whole Bible. Mm. The Old Testament speaks about and to Jesus. Mm. The whole What is the saying? The, the New Testament is all concealed in the old and the old Testament is revealed in the new. Right. This is that embodied. And what right. are they talking about? They're talking about, it says his Exodus that he was to perform in Jerusalem, which is exactly where we're talking about the tabernacling. Exactly. Right. Cause it's the it Exodus to fits. lead us to into the promised land. And that's why the right. turning point of the, of the, uh, of this is happening is to, to point us to yes. say, okay, the end of the road does still exist. Yeah, I, I, I want to know what exactly the apostles are overhearing in this conversation, because they're just kind of eavesdropping, right? They're, they're just there seeing this. And I wonder if, I mean, it, what it says is that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about his exodus that he's going to have in Jerusalem. And I wonder if the apostles, the, you know, who don't totally get it, are just like, wait— what? Like the, the Exodus already happened. Like that happened back in Egypt. That right. was, that was, I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, like we know hindsight of 2000 years, right? 
But if you're just hearing, oh, there's Jesus and these dudes from the Old Testament talking about the Exodus, we're like, but that already happened in Egypt, not in Jerusalem. The Exodus didn't happen in Jerusalem. It happened in Egypt. It happened in Goshen. So what do you, what do you, what on earth are you talking about? And I don't know to what under, level of understanding the apostles have. I don't know what exactly they're hearing. I don't know if the gospel writers are writing back and saying, no, they were talking about the new Exodus or if they're, you know, and that's their interpretation of the conversation or, you know what I mean? I just, yeah. I wonder to what degree they understood because yeah, what's the Exodus? It's a movement from slavery to freedom. It's a movement from oppression to a promised land. Which is, again, this is the key to understanding the passion. It's the new exodus. It takes us from slavery of sin to freedom of grace, of, of oppression of the evil one to a new promised land, of the new creation being reborn. This is the topic of conversation. Um, the apostles are being given this little insight as a food, as a reminder for the very hard task that they're going to have to go do. And right. so they want to stay. They're like, let's celebrate tabernacles here. Let's not go to Jerusalem, which is what you're required to do on the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're probably like, let's do it here. This is a better, I mean, Moses is here for Pete's sake. That right. seems like a good idea to celebrate his feast here. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, we got to go down. And I don't remember if it's in Matthew. Again, it's definitely in Luke. Sorry. But do you remember what happens as soon as they come down the mountain? There is a, a weird possession that is like boggling everybody's mind because he because they can't do it. Normally, they're just used to calling on the authority. And he says, no, this only happens by prayer. This isn't working. But but there's also they come down to chaos. So they come down the mountain and everyone's yelling at him because of this possession that nobody can seem to figure out. They come down and everyone's like, "Jesus, where'd you go? We had this thing. We don't know what to do." I mean, it's like I'm, I'm sure, like I don't. You go it's away like coming from vacation, back from vacation, right? Always. And everyone's like, "There's cry the pastoral councils in crisis, and every the finances, and we can't." I, that's like the thing. It's, it's which real. Is why Jesus is like, "No, you can't stay here. I've given you a momentary insight. I've given you a glimpse, and you need to use that glimpse." as this reminder of who I am right. so that you can what return back to the chaos right. and deal with all this stuff that's actually happening, but be able to do it with sanity and not drive yourself crazy and not have to flee, which they eventually do, but because you, you already know who I am. And so this is the whole thing with Abraham. This is the thing with Paul. This is the thing with the apostles. Eventually this is going to take for the apostles. And I was reflecting on them just like Paul this morning in that, the apostles never really get to, even probably less than Paul, never get to see the fruit of what they're doing. They're mm. all martyred, except for John, right. who dies imprisoned on an island in Patmos, right? right? They don't get to see the fruit of what they've done. But they've gotten to see, they were given the food in preparation. They were given the relationship. Mm. And because they have the relationship, they know what it can do. And that they know, presumably, that they are the fulfillment of the promises given way back to Abraham. Thanks be to God that Abraham and the guts and the courage and the spiritual sight to move forward in doing these things. Right. Because of that, we then have Jesus, who gives us the apostles, who give us the church, who they die never having seen the full fruit of. But they die in peace, presumably, because they know where it's going, even if they haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And there's a beauty to that to me. There's a, tr there's a, a little bit of a heartbreak, but a heartbreak in the sense that sometimes heartbreaks are okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to feel that little bit of pain because then they get to participate with Jesus mm. in a little bit of the heartbreak over what they can't see yet, but they know is. Mm. I don't know. That's what I, that was what I was thinking about today. That's beautiful. I love it. I really don't have anything to add. I think that you're, you're on it. I mean, yeah. How do we, how do we just have the courage? Yeah. How, I mean, it's like, Lord, give us courage 
to follow after you wherever you will lead. Right. Really, just, and without necessarily having to see what the fruits are. But we can do that, I think, at least in my spiritual life. I can't speak for anybody else. The only ways I'm ever able to do that in those hard moments is looking back and being like, well, I remember how it felt in that moment. I remember when I experienced God in that way. Right. And because we have those touch points, right? Those milestones, those then markers. We can, those that's posts. what I think the transfiguration was for them. They're like, no, we knew. Right. Even if I don't feel it now, I know when I did feel it and it was real. And I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna access that resource, and then I'll move forward. I even think Jesus does that does that when he goes and meditates on the Holy Spirit, um, descending upon him on the banks of the Jordan before mm. his before he um his crucifixion. Interesting. So, well, you guys, That's a beautiful you, insight. Yeah, isn't it? It is. Because in his full humanity, he needs those touch points as well. Yeah, he needs to remember he's beloved of God. Yeah. Wow, that's actually really beautiful. So, you guys are beloved. Thank you for listening. Um, You guys are the best. See you soon. We will be back soon. And if you bonked on your fasting, just keep going. (laughs) Keep trying. Get back up. Get back up. Okay. See you next time. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.